James, since you're a brilliant removalist, would you mind getting someone else to help you with that and maybe stick it just um, just behind me? It looks heavy, but I believe in your strength. That is heavy. Fantastic. Thank you. Awesome. Everyone good? Great. What time's lunch? Twelve fifteen. All right. It's just important to know these things. Just give us a wave if we've never met before. Okay, a couple of us. Nice to meet you. And I look forward to chatting personally a little bit later. Uh, thanks for having me in Gladstone. Really nice to be here. Just if I can um, just add to what uh, James said regarding uh, emerging leaders. Uh, if you're a senior pastor, um, you really need to understand a couple of things. Number one, um, emerging leaders is not for training youth pastors. Uh, emerging leaders is recognizing that we have some incredible 18 to 30-year-olds, some of whom will go into pastoral ministry, most of whom will become leaders in the secular workforce, but are called to be a great blessing in the local church. And so it's not youth leadership training, it's leadership training for young people, regardless of whether they're going into ministry in the church or in the secular workforce. Second, it's not for backslidden young people whom you're hoping will get on fire for God at Emerging Leaders because you've not been able to do anything with them, but hopefully Emerging Leaders will sort them out. Uh, it's not like that. Let me tell you, the first session at Emerging Leaders, it always catches the young people out a little bit because the first session we pray. And, and they think we're going to pray in tongues for about 15 minutes, but we pray for about an hour. And you can see after about 15 minutes, they start looking at us like, are we finishing soon? And, uh, and so we really are taking the cream of the crop from all of our local churches. And we really are, it's like boot camp for those young people with the whole intent that they come back to our churches better equipped to serve in their local church. And so honestly, Emerging Leaders is actually all about just trying to help a little bit more the young people who are in your church to serve and uh, lead well for you. And um, so it'll really be a blessing to your church. On top of that, um, as senior ministers, you are very welcome. In fact, more than that, encouraged to actually come and be part of it. Um, I go to Emerging Leaders every year with a whole bunch of young people from our church. And so it costs me a couple of days, but I've got 365 of them. So it cost me a couple to be able to invest relationally with some of the up-and-coming great young adults in our church. And I tell you what, the investment is absolutely worth the return. Uh, moreover, um, if you come along, let us know. We'll get you to uh, help out. I know what you like. Preachers have to preach. And um, so if you're there, we will utilize your wisdom and uh, get you to share with the young people as well. And so that would be great. One other thing before we get to the Word, I wanted to say thank you. Uh, to everyone in your region uh, from a Calvary point of view um, for the way that you have um, welcomed uh, firstly James and uh, Joe who took on uh, the church at Yapoon and uh, also for uh, James and Hensley who've um, planted in Ro James and Hensley James and Paula who've planted in uh, Ro what Dan and Joe oh whoever um <laughs> Like I said, I'm glad you know who they are. Uh, I'm vaguely familiar with some of these people. <laughs> but I'm glad you're looking after them and appreciating them. Um, 
we, uh, we're really grateful for the, the welcome and the friendship that you've offered. And, uh, you know, especially to, to our friends like um, uh, John and Anita. You know, we all believe in church planting, don't we? Until someone plants a church in our town. <laughs> um, I love John and Anita because they actually do believe in church planting. Because uh, they've been nothing short of encouraging and supporting. And so uh, we really appreciate that. All right, you ready for the word? Here we go. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 12, uh, verses 1 to 4. It's a passage that has really helped me. And I pray this will be an encouragement to you uh, today. Um, it, it tells the story of the call of Abraham. And you've got to remember, this is the first time Abraham ever encounters God. And so the scripture says, The Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'll bless you and make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I'm going to bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. It sounds fantastic. So Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Now, it's easy to read that story and to miss the incredible step of faith that Abraham takes. Uh, Abraham has lived 75 years in Haran. I'm not sure how long you've lived at your present address. We have lived at 6 Browning Street, Mount Louisa, Townsville for the last seven years. And with seven years, there's enough longevity to breed familiarity. Uh, in seven years, we have found our favorite cafe. There's a lot of cafes in Townsville, but we have our favorite cafe. And it's not just our favorite cafe, we have our favorite table at our favorite cafe. And it's not just our favorite table, but on the menu at our favorite cafe, we have our favorite menu items such that when we sit down at our favorite table, they no longer ask us what we want. They just say, will it be the usual? I like that. Out of all the shopping centers in Townsville, there are three, my wife has her preferred shopping center. And in that shopping center, she has her preferred grocery store. Out of all the hairdressing salons where I get my biannual haircut, I have my preferred hairdressing salon. We, we are familiar with Townsville, and I like that because we've lived there long enough to establish patterns of behavior, so we no longer really even need to think about what we're going to do. We just do it. Well, you can imagine for Abraham, he's been living 75 years in Haran. He can't remember the last time he used a GPS on his phone. He never has to think about where he's going. He knows Haran like the back of his hand. And into his familiarity steps God. And God says, Abraham, I want you to leave the place that you've become familiar with. Abraham says, well, well, well okay, but, but where do you want us to go? And God says, well, here's the thing. I'll tell you where you're going when you get there. Now, how many of you know it's one thing for Abraham to agree to this? It's another thing for Abraham to go home and convince Mrs. Abraham to agree to this. Because women don't just like familiarity. Women are obsessed with sentimentality. And so you can imagine he goes home and he sits down at the kitchen table and he says to his wife, God's been speaking to me. She's like, God's always speaking to you, Abraham. He said, no, no, this time it's serious. She said, well, what did he say? Abraham says, well, well God says we've got to leave. She, she says, that, that, she crosses her arms, says, we, we can't leave. We've been here 75 years. I've just got the curtains that I always wanted. I finally matched the furniture to the color of the walls. 
what do you mean we've got to leave? He says, well, that's what God said. We've got to leave. She looks at him sternly and says, well, all right. To where? You can imagine Abraham shifting nervously in his seat, looking at the carpet. And he says, well, we'll see, here's the thing. God said he'll tell us where we're going when we get there. Hashtag awkward. (laughs) Mrs. Abraham's got a million questions and Abraham can't answer any of them. She wants to know how far are we going? He's unsure. She wants to know, is it safe? where we're going. He hasn't the faintest. Will we know anybody there? He's clueless. Well, do we pack light or do we take everything? He hasn't got any clue about that one either. Will we ever return? Doesn't know. Will we speak the language of the people where we're going? She's got a million questions and Abraham is completely unsure concerning every question she has. I used to think that when I gave my life to Jesus, everything would become sure. And these days, I'm not so sure. I used to think that when I went into church leadership and I was finally leading the church, you know, most things in life would be certain. And yet I find I am less and less certain about most things. Uh, Hebrews 11 verse 8 says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place he would receive his inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. That sounds like a lot of your leadership. He went out not knowing where he was going. To illustrate this dynamic, let me divide your life into two parts because let's face it, most of you are bipolar. And so if we were to say there's a spiritual dimension to your life and there's a natural dimension to your life. Is that fair? And so uh, we ask questions as people. For instance, one of our questions is, uh, who am I? That's the question of identity. And, uh, and we want to know, you know, well, 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 who am I, really? I mean, and, and the, the other question is the question of meaning and purpose. What's my life all about? And, and another question we ask is, uh, what happens after death? Um, is there life after death or, or is there nothingness? And, uh, and these are all important questions. In fact, these are all spiritual questions. Did you realize that? Let me prove it to you. Uh, uh, The question of identity is not a question that your dog has ever considered. Uh, Not once does your dog sit in its kennel thinking to itself, I know they call me Rover, but who am I really? Uh, That's a spiritual question. You and I answer it, but, but animals never contemplate the question of identity. Meaning is a spiritual question. Uh, you and I kind of think about what are we supposed to be doing and what's our life all about and why am I here? But, but not once does your dog ever chase a car down the road, snapping at its tires, thinking to itself, this is fun, but what am I really supposed to be doing with my life? Uh, your dog doesn't consider that, but you and I think about that because it's a spiritual question. And my answer to all of these questions before I met Christ was unsure, unsure, unsure. Who am I? I don't know, I I know who my friends would like me to be, I know who the media are trying to convince me to be, I I know who my peer group are trying to pressure me to be, I I know who my parents expect me to be, but but who am I? I I don't know, I, I, I wanted to finish school and then take a year backpacking through Europe to find myself. The question of meaning and purpose, why am I here? 
I don't know. I'm, I'm just kind of hoping to get a bigger credit card limit. I, I, I don't know what the purpose of my life is. I haven't really planned much beyond the weekend. And as for is there life after death, I, I don't want to think about turning 40. And so my question, all of these things is unsure, unsure, unsure. And we cannot live unsure. You and I cannot cope living with our feet firmly planted in midair. And so what we do is we try to avoid ever contemplating these things and we focus entirely on natural things like, um, you know, where am I going to live? Uh, where am I going to get my money from? Uh, who am I going to uh, do life with? And uh, these sort of things that I have a measure of control over. And so before I came to Christ, when it comes to spiritual things, who am I? What am I supposed to be doing? What's the ultimate end of all things? I was completely unsure, but it didn't matter because I just tried to be pretty sure about where am I going to live? How am I going to get my money? Who's going to come with me? And I just tried to make sure of these things. Then I gave my life to Jesus. And Jesus began to answer the spiritual questions in my life. Who am I? I'm a child of God made in His image. Why am I here? To reflect His glory through my giftings, my talents, my behavior. And as for life after death, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so for the first time in my life, I was certain of all these spiritual things. Then a strange thing happened. God began to speak to me. And He began to ask me to take steps of faith. He'd asked me to take a step. And I would say, well, well, okay, Lord, I, I was sure that God was speaking to me. I just wanted to know if I take the step of faith and do what I'm sure you're asking me to do, how am I going to pay for it? And you know what I found? He was quite quiet. I, I said, well, well, Lord, we'll do that, but, but just who, who's, who's going to come with me? Crickets. Well, well all right, Lord, if, if, if I take that step of faith, How's that going to affect our family? How are we going to live? And God would be completely silent on all of these questions. And so this incredible transformation happened in my life where before Christ, I went from clueless about spiritual things to pretty sure about you know, the day-to-day -day stuff. But now following Jesus, I am very sure about the spirits leading in my life, but completely clueless concerning what it's going to mean for the day-to-day -day things of my life. And, and it's the spiritual certainties that enable us to embrace all of the uncertainties that following Jesus necessarily will mean. Let me put it a different way for you. To be sure of spiritual realities is necessarily to be unsure of all the details. But because I'm so sure of who Christ is and what He's called me to do, I'm able to embrace the not knowing about all the day-to-day -day implications. Oswald Chambers said, To be certain of God is to be uncertain in all our ways. You never know what a day may bring. This is generally said with a sigh of sadness. It should rather be an expression of breathless expectation. Listen to what he says again. To be sure of God is to be unsure of pretty much everything else because you just don't know what this afternoon will bring. You just don't know what the Holy Spirit's going to drop into your heart later this week. You don't know what great vision, what great ministry initiative God's going to bring into your spirit in the months or years to come. To be sure of God 
is to be unsure of everything else because you don't know who God's going to ask you to give money to. You don't know who God's going to ask you to reach out to. You just don't know what God is going to ask. Now, to be unsure of everything else is generally said with a sigh of sadness, but rather Oswald Chambers says we should say this with breathless expectation because this is what makes the Christian life great. This is what makes the Christian life an adventure. This is what separates the religious from the people of faith. It's the willingness to embrace the uncertainty of day-to-day life because we are so certain Jesus has asked us to take a step. I tell you, there's one thing that God promises in your life and mine as leaders. He promises we'll never be completely sure of anything. (laughs) Oh, we'll be sure of Him, but of everything else, we'll always be a little bit uncertain. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 20, Jesus said, Foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay His head. What's Jesus talking about? He's talking about foxes and birds. They are natural creatures. Now, it's true that you and I are natural, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. When we die, they'll put us in a hole where we decay and rust. But we also have the breath of God. Animals are different in that they are made from the dust of the earth as we are, but without the divine spark. And so they are entirely natural creatures. And Jesus says, understand how natural creatures operate. Foxes. Natural creatures make very sure of natural things. They make sure they've got a hole in which to hide. Birds make sure they've got a nest in which to sleep. But the Son of Man, a spiritual creature, is completely unsure where he's ever going to lay his head. In other words, Jesus is promising the disciples high levels of uncertainty. If Jesus makes any promise to you and I, it's the promise that we will continually step into the void unsure of exactly what it is we're stepping into, sure only that God told us to take the step. Think about the way that Jesus called the disciples in Matthew chapter 4. It says, Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon and Andrew, casting nets into the sea, for they were fishermen. I love the Bible. It's written for people of all levels of comprehension. They were casting nets into the sea, for they were fishermen. No kidding. That's probably why they were casting nets into the sea. Does Matthew think we're stupid? No, he's trying to make a point. Fishing's not just what they did. Fishing's who they were. They were casting nets into the sea, not just because fishing is what they did. They were fishermen. They didn't have to worry about what they'd be doing tomorrow. They already knew they'd be fishing. If you asked them what they'd be doing six months from now, they'd be fishing. If you asked them what will you be doing a decade from now, they'll be fishing. The reason they'll be fishing forever into the future is because their dad was a fisherman and their grandfather before him. One day they'd have their own children and it was already determined what their own kids would be doing. They would be fishing. And into this certainty, into this regimented routine of activity, Jesus steps. Listen to what happens. Jesus comes and and, uh, says to them, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Now, that to me seems incredibly strange. Jesus walks into their regimented, diarized routine where they knew exactly what was going to happen. And Jesus says, follow me. I'm going to make you fishers of men. Now, we've heard that a million times, so we know what it means. But think of the disciples who are hearing this for the first time. I'm going to make you fishers of men. 
I'm not sure about you, but what is that? Like a fish, they are catching fish, and he's talking about becoming a fisher of men and saying, leave everything and follow me. And if I were them, I would have said, well, okay, I'm, I'm open, but a few details would be good. For instance, have you got some people who have done the Fishers of Men course that I could ring for a referral? Do you have a brochure that describes, that, is it government accredited, this Fisher of Men thing? C- can I get vet fee help? Is there, is there could, I, could I just go home and talk to my parents about this? Is there a documentary we could watch? Is, is there some kind of, could, could we have a coffee? And maybe you could just explain this whole Fishers of Men, but Jesus doesn't do that. Think about the scene. Jesus walks in, to their diarized, regimented, routine life. And he says, follow me. I'm going to make you fishers of men. And then he goes. And and they're standing there with a million questions. Do we ever come back to our boats? How do we survive? What is a fisher of men? What are people going to say? But Jesus, he's already gone. And the miracle of the story is that it says they immediately left their nets and followed him. Amazing what happened. There was a supernatural transaction in that moment where the disciples, not knowing what a fisher of man was, not knowing where Jesus was going, not knowing where the future would take them, unsure of all of that, but incredibly sure that this person who just interrupted them was not just another in a long line of teaching rabbis. He was not just another impressive miracle worker. This is the son of God. They were sure of it. This is the Messiah in the flesh. This is the long-awaited promised one. They were certain of that. And they were so certain that this was God incarnate, they were willing to be uncertain of everything else. You know, um, in hindsight, I think we would find that most of the defining moments in our lives were the moments where we were so sure that God was speaking to us, we were willing to be unsure about everything else. Most of the major turning points in our lives where we really went up to a whole new level in whatever area were those moments where we were willing to sacrifice being certain in order to take a step of faith in response to the voice of God. Think about when you got married. I gotta admit, when I got married, I was not completely sure. I was... I was probably pretty sure. You could say I was mostly sure. But when Samantha walked down the aisle, I was not 100% sure. Don't look at me like that. Neither were you. Think about it. How could you be 100% sure when you got married? There are 3 billion women on the planet. I'd not had the opportunity to meet them all. So I was not 100% sure that she was the one. I I was sure enough to take a punt. I was sure enough to put on a tuxedo. That's about as sure as I was. But how many of you know, if I'd waited until I was absolutely sure she is the one, I'd still be single. Because you're never completely sure. You're pretty sure and you roll the dice. I would never preach this when my wife is here. But but I feel like we've got a circle of trust this morning. Don't tell her. I was sure enough that God had spoken to me that I was willing to be unsure about what being wed to this woman would really be like. When we adopted our children from Africa, I remember when the social worker sat down and said, uh, we've got two boys 
six months old for you to adopt. Would you like to adopt them? And we said, well, maybe. We've got some questions. Uh, what do they look like? Have you got a photo? They had no photo. We wanted a photo. We wanted to make sure they were from Africa, not Tasmania. <laughs> there is a way that you can tell. And, uh, and that they didn't have a photograph. And so we said, well, what about their parents? Like, were their parents on drugs and, and uh, were they alcoholics? And then there's a chance of like some sort of mental illness with these kids or what? That they had no uh, genetic history whatsoever. We said, well, you've got to be able to give us something. That they said, all, all we know is that the Ethiopian authorities described them as happy and handsome. My wife got really excited. Oh, they're happy and handsome. I said, sweetheart, they're trying to get us to adopt them. They're hardly going to say, we've got a couple of kids for you to adopt. They're sad and ugly. Would you like them? <laughs> They're all happy and handsome. And, uh, and so we adopted our children with, with no more certainty than God had told us, adopt from Africa, specifically Ethiopia, and not one but two. That's all we knew. God had spoken. And so we brought these two kids into our house completely clueless as to all of the natural questions that occupied our minds. I remember when we planted a church in Cairns. We'd been talking about it for quite some time. And we'd been talking about, you know, how are we going to pay for it? And uh, how are we going to do multi-campus with one in Townsville, one on the Sunshine Coast? This will be three. Uh, are we going to be able to stretch that far? And, and what if we start it and no one comes? We're going to look stupid. What, what if we start it and, and the whole thing just flops? And, and how about me? Am I, how am I going to manage not one but two but now three churches? And, and, and how's it all going to And You know, our answers to all of those questions were unsure, unsure, unsure. At the end of the day, we decided, well, what do we know? And we answered, we know God's told us to do it. That was about the only thing we knew. As to how it's going to work, how we're going to pay for it, who's going to come, we were clueless about all those things. But if we'd waited until we were absolutely sure, we would never have done anything. And I suppose this is what I'm trying to communicate you today, is that so many leaders are waiting for certainty when certainty does not exist when you're living by faith. Certainty in relation to Christ's call, of course, but in relation to everything else, not even a bit. No, sometimes you've got to give up certainty in order to lay hold of the great thing God has for you. In Matthew 19, it's the parallel story of Matthew 4. In Matthew 4, Jesus comes to these uncouth, unkempt fishermen. He says, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. And, and, and they're so convinced this is the Christ, they're willing to embrace uncertainty about everything. They become world changers, world travelers. 1,500 years before the age of exploration, Peter ends up in Italy, uh, James uh, ends up in Spain, um, Thomas ends up in India. I, I mean, they travel the world. They, they, they could have spent their entire lives fishing the Sea of Galilee. But because they were willing to embrace the uncertainty of God's call, they found themselves on the edge of history making. Compare and contrast with Matthew 19, where there's a man described as a rich young ruler. I mean, this guy's awesome. Already I want to be him when I grow up. He's rich. All right, it's just me, but I, I would, I, 
I'm not against being rich. I would sign up for that. And he's not just rich, but he's young, which is important because what's the point of being rich when you're old? There's only so many ways you can pimp your walker. But uh, he's got not just wealth, but he's got the youthful vitality to enjoy it. And he's powerful. He's got authority. He's a ruler. So he's rich, young, and powerful. He's an ancient Kardashian. Which makes his question to Jesus all the more strange. He says, what good thing must I do? I'm thinking, are you serious? You're rich, young, and powerful, and you're still not satisfied? What's wrong with you? He says, I don't know. I just know there's got to be something more. What good thing? And Jesus says, well, since you brought up good, why don't you try keeping all the commandments? To which he says, I I have. So he's rich, young, powerful, and morally upstanding, and yet he still says, there's got to be something more. Isn't it interesting our churches are full of people who are saying, you know what, I love the worship, I love the preaching, but I'm just, I don't know, I might, I might try the other church. Our churches are filled with people like this rich young ruler who've got everything laid on for them, and yet they're still confessing, I don't know what it is, I'm just feeling kind of restless, pastor. Jesus says to this rich young ruler, here's what you need to do, sell everything you have, give it all away, follow me. In other words, Jesus is saying, here's your problem. You're so diarized, you're so regimented, you're so certain of everything in your life, you're so planned, there's no room for me. So why don't we create a little room? Get rid of everything you have, and then you'll have to completely trust on me. That's living. Jesus really is saying to him, you're bored. That's your problem. You're moral. You don't need to pray more. You don't need to, you know, stay away from bad things more. You're already doing all the stuff. It's just that you're bored. And our churches are filled with people who are bored. I've met pastors who, to be honest, are kind of bored. But there's no excuse for living a boring Christian life because Jesus says, just follow me. But if I follow you, do I ever get my money back? If I give away everything, how do I live? What will my family say? Jesus says, welcome to an exciting adventure. And it says he went away sad. Think about this. This is the greatest opportunity anyone has ever been given. I know some of you run internships in your church. We do as well. But forget those. This is the greatest internship offer in history. This is three years with the Son of God. You get a ringside seat for every miracle. When Jesus walks on water, you're not just there. You get invited to have a go yourself. It's amazing. Jesus feeds the 5,000. No, Jesus doesn't feed the 5,000. He blesses the food and then gets you to do the miracle. You get to be there as Jesus teaches the Beatitudes from the mountain. This is an amazing opportunity. And he he says, I I can't. Because, I mean, but there's all these questions. Because if I, if I do that, well, how are we going to pay for stuff? And, and who's going to come with us? And what if it doesn't work? What, what if we fall flat on our faces and we, we look stupid? And he goes away sad while the fishermen, uncouth, unkempt, undisciplined, unqualified, change the world. The more I think about it, the more I'm convinced there's really only one quality God looks for. 
it's not for people to, to be more spiritual or more moral or, 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 or to do all, all those. Those things are all important, but the qualification God looks for ultimately is faith. Without faith, it's impossible. It doesn't matter how young, rich, powerful, or moral you are. If there's no faith, it's impossible for anything pleasing or good to ever come. Be more afraid of lifelong regret than of some temporary uncertainty. Be more afraid in your life of a lifetime of regret. Thinking, wonder what would have happened if. Wonder if I had have just given everything away and followed Jesus. I wonder what would have happened. Be more afraid of lifetime of regret than of a few moments of temporary uncertainty. You know, um, all of us will have some certainties we need to sacrifice in order to go to the next level God has for us. Andy Stanley said there will always be an element of uncertainty. Generally speaking, you're probably never going to be more than 80% certain of anything. Waiting for greater certainty might cause you to miss an opportunity. Uncertainty actually increases with increased leadership responsibility. The more responsibility you assume as a leader, the more uncertainty you'll be expected to manage. The cost of success as a leader is greater uncertainty, not less. Now, I'm not saying don't do due diligence. I'm not saying don't get wise counsel. I'm not saying don't count the cost before you embark on building the tower. What I'm saying is, having done all of that, you'll still never be completely sure. And the danger is we get caught in the paralysis of analysis where we keep counting and recounting and counting and recounting and looking and looking again and looking and looking again and looking and looking again, hoping that we'll be 100% sure when you're probably never more likely to be than maybe 80% at most sure. There comes a moment where having used the brain God's given us and the counsel that we have in our lives, you've got to decide whether to take a step of faith or not. It, and, and I like what Andy Stanley says. He says that the more you follow the Lord, the more uncertainty you're going to have to manage in your life. And as leaders, it's incredibly important we understand this. As board members, it's incredibly important we understand this. Because, uh, you know, we've all uh, seen board members who uh, hear a vision and they cross their arms and say, well, um, okay, but how's that all going to work? And, and people want a 10-point plan before they're willing to support anything. Well, you know, you would never have ended up following Jesus because Jesus didn't give 10-point plans. Jesus gave a command and then no details, which is highly frustrating, but that's the point of faith. You've just got to trust. If Abraham had waited until he knew everything, he would never have left Haran. He would never have had children. His descendants would never have possessed the promise. He would never have been known as the father of faith. Abraham is a hero because he was so sure of God, he was willing to be unsure about everything else. You and I can be heroes based on one qualification, that we just are so sure God called us. I'm going to continue taking steps of faith, even though I'm completely clueless as to about how it's going to all turn out in the end. Uh, let me finish with a, a pop quiz, because that's how you finish sermons these days. 
uh, you know, they have names for groups of animals. So, um, you know, they call a group of fish a, um, a school. They, they call a group of bees a, a swarm. They call a group of crows a, a murder. Shocked that you would say that in church. A group of dolphins is called a pod. Very good. A group of wombats. Burrow. That's a good guess. A wisdom. A wisdom of wombats. I've never looked at a wombat and thought, there resides all wisdom. <laughs> you know what they call a group of vultures? A committee. It's true, a committee of vultures. Some of you have chaired that committee. <laughs> this is true, Pastor John. You know what they call a group of crocodiles? A congregation. Congregation of crocodiles. You preached and barely escaped with your life. Our family uh, was in Africa um, a couple of years ago and we, uh, we went and sort of looked for the big five. So where do you got lion and giraffe and elephant? And the, the one animal we missed was a rhino, which we really wanted to see. In fact, I managed to see some rhino on my last trip to Africa. There's two things you need to know about rhinos. Um, firstly, a rhino can run at 50 kilometers an hour. It's fast. It's faster than a squirrel. No, it actually is. A squirrel can run at, well, not any squirrel, a Usain Bolt squirrel can run at 42 kilometers an hour. Uh, a rhino can run at 50 kilometers an hour. So that's, that's, the other thing you need to know about a rhinoceros, it can run at 50 kilometers an hour, but the second thing you need to know is it can't see more than nine meters in front of its own face. <laughs> Think about the physics of this. You've got this hulking great beast running at 50 kilometers an hour with no idea what's nine meters in front of its own face. But here's the deal. It doesn't have to know what's out there. It just has to know what God put right here. It doesn't have to be sure what's around the next bend. It just has to be sure what God put right on its forehead. You know what a group of rhinos is called? It's called a crash. A crash of rhinos. I reckon it's about time we had a crash of Christians who aren't too sure what's around the next corner. We're not too sure what's across the next hill we're not too sure what's going to happen next month but I am very sure what God put right here I am very sure I'm filled with his spirit I'm very sure he's got a plan and a purpose I'm very sure he's called me I haven't got a clue how this is going to work out there but I know what I'm carrying here and because we are so sure of what God put here I'm willing to venture out there completely clueless as to what's going to confront me but I'm just confident in who God is in me a crash of Christians. How ironic would it be? How, how much of an oxymoron to have timid, shy, anxious, stressful rhinoceros? You don't see a rhino hiding in the background. They don't back away from anyone or anything because they know what God's put right here. Well, what an oxymoron to have a timid, shy, afraid, anxious, stressed church that are sort of afraid to take any steps well, because, you know, the economy and, well, you know, some things are happening in our city and the downturn in this industry and that industry. And what we need is a crash of Christians who really don't know what's going to happen with the economy or all these. I, I don't know any more than anyone else does. All I know is this. God's with me. And he who began a good work will complete it. 
And he told me to take a step of faith. And I don't know when we put our foot out what we're going to find there, but I do know God will make a way. And I really believe God's wanting us in this season to lead churches that don't just sit back and think, well, we'll wait for circumstances to shift and become more favorable. No, no, the church has never waited for circumstance. The church in every generation has crashed through whatever circumstances or challenges to lead people into the good thing God has. That is my heritage and your heritage as a leader in the church of Jesus. We are those who crash through. And so I pray today that courage would fill your heart, not timidity. That great strength would fill your heart, not fear. And if God has spoken, after you've done your due diligence and all of that stuff, and you still aren't quite sure how it's going to work, you'd come back to one simple question, what did God say? And that you would find in your heart what God said would be enough. Enough for you to step out and walk on and that you would crash through whatever obstacles, challenges, and lead people into God's preferred season in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. I want to pray for you today. Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for your goodness in our lives. God, I thank you. We're all here, not by our own design, not because we thought it would be a good idea, but you spoke to us. Why don't you just, while you've got your eyes closed, go back to that moment where God called you, where God spoke. And when you obeyed the call of God into ministry, to start to get involved, to go to Bible college, whatever it was. You didn't know then how it was going to work out. So why now, all these years later, are you waiting for certainty before you do anything? You didn't start with certainty. You were never guaranteed certainty. And so I know there's a lot of uncertainty today, but that's the way it will always be. And yet, I am sure of this. He who began a good work in me. He will complete it. That all things work together for good for those. If God is for us, who can be a God? Of those things, I am sure. And so I pray today for every person, God, that as we take steps of faith, that you would uphold us by your mighty hand and we would crash and break through all barriers to be able to see your kingdom expand and grow. In Jesus' wonderful name, we pray it. And everybody said... Amen. Just close your eyes for one moment longer. Just before I hand back to James. What is it that God's been speaking to you about? Because there'll be something that God's been speaking to you about. Maybe it's an issue of giving. Maybe it's a new initiative. Maybe it's to plant another church or another campus. But God will have been speaking, because God is always speaking and there'll be something God's been speaking to you about, and you know that God's spoken to you, but you've been putting it off and putting it off because there's still a lot of unanswered questions. Just maybe today, God is saying, come on, don't get caught in the paralysis of analysis. Why don't you just trust me? Take a step into the unknown. I'll tell you where you're going when you get there, but take a step today. Father, I pray, let that courage and conviction be our strength and our energy in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, James. Brilliant. Brilliant, isn't it? It's incredibly important. You know, I think that's so foundational, but